we begin this series that I'm extremely excited about that's entitled Savior. And when we think about that word, I think some of us, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, our minds might go to Jesus, and if that's you, that's for sure the right answer. Uh, but the reality is that some of us may be in this room and we, if we're honest, we would not have uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and maybe for you, Savior, your mind would not necessarily go to Jesus, maybe it would go to some other thing. And so when we think about what this series is entitled, I think there's something about defining that word Savior. Like, what does that word actually mean? If we look at a dictionary, what would that dictionary reveal about the definition of this word? And so I thought myself to that because different ideas come to my mind when I hear Savior. And so this is what Webster's Dictionary and how it defines this word Savior Simply this, and there's multiple definitions, but this is the first one that it lists. It's this, one that saves from danger or destruction. That's the definition that this dictionary gives that doesn't really have leanings towards uh, someone who would be an evangelical or someone that wouldn't have any regard for God at all. This is just a simple definition. This is what Savior is, someone that saves from danger or destruction. Here's what I know that's true about every one of us, regardless of of who you believe or what you believe to be your savior, the reality is this. Everyone is looking to something or someone to be their savior. All of us are. None of us are not. And so you may, be, you may sit here today and when you hear that word and we look at that definition, maybe you're here today and you would say that you are looking at, if you're being honest, you're looking to a relationship to rescue you, to save you maybe from loneliness. And so you're in a relationship for that reason because I want to be saved from loneliness. I don't want to be alone. And so I'm thankful for the relationship so much so that I look at that as my savior. Maybe others of us, maybe you just got a new job and you're excited about that job and you have a new employer. And so for you, maybe that employer, that new occupation is your savior and it's freed you, it saved you from the danger of being in a dead end situation. Like you're like, man, I'm so thankful not to be in that job anymore that was going absolutely nowhere and I've been given this new job and so you may be viewing that as your savior today. Maybe it's a financial deal. You're like, man, if this deal can go through and everything can line up and if this can happen this week or in the next month, if this can just go through, then I will be saved from the danger of whatever it may be for you. And so that financial deal in your mind right now is being looked at as a savior. Maybe you got diagnosed with something this week. An ailment, a cancer, uh, some other form of illness. And so this week you know you have to go to the doctor and you are hoping and you are praying that those test results come back negative, that there's a treatment plan set up that gives you hope. And so right now maybe that doctor... That treatment is your savior according to our definition. That thing, that one that saves us from danger or destruction. See, this series, Savior, is a six-week series that is going to look at the last week of Jesus' ministry. What took place in that last week, often called Passion Week or Holy Week. 
And we're going to start it today, and it's going to culminate on Easter Sunday. And we are going to look at the one person who truly deserves to be called that term, Savior. See, D.A. Carson is a theologian, and he says this in regards to this idea. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. And if he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a Savior, capital S. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. That's the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning, specifically verses 28 through 40. And what we're going to find as we enter into this last week of Jesus' ministry and this first week of our series entitled Savior that we're going to see that Jesus, as he enters into Jerusalem, that this is really his coronation, his king, is being recognized as such. You might even have at the heading, at the, type of the, at the top of this section of your Bible, it might say, triumphal entry. It's normally a passage of Scripture that if you grew up in any sort of traditional type church, or, or really any church, you might say, well, this is the passage of Scripture. We're, we're talking about this too soon. Like, we talk about this on Palm Sunday. It's not Palm Sunday today. We'll put that aside, because in order for us to reach the culmination of the resurrection on Easter Sunday, that will be a glorious day of celebration, just like today was, we start here in this passage of Scripture on this Sunday. And so I want you to see in verses 28 and 29 where we have Jesus. And what we're going to look at as we unpack all the way through verse 40, who our Jesus reveals himself to be. And so I'm going to read through these two verses. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to unpack this passage of Scripture. Look at what it says in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, what things? The previous things that you find above verse 28. He went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. So he is now entering in. He's on his way to Jerusalem to do what he knew he was always called to do. And in chapter 9, verse 51, that we'll read here in just a few moments, he is focused, as he always has been, on the mission that God had given him. And then we come to verse 29, and it says, And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. So if you understood the landscape that existed back then, this is the way that you would have gotten to Jerusalem. Through Bethpage, through Bethany, you would have gone down the Mount of Olives into this city of Jerusalem. Now here's the title of the message this morning. Here it is. On the road for you. As we kick off this series entitled Savior, we're in this passage of Scripture and we're going to be reminded that our Savior, Jesus Christ, 
went on this road for you, and He went on this road for me. Heavenly Father, we are here today to hear from You. God, every song that we have sung has been sung to You. God, and now as we open up Your Word, Lord, we open up Your Word, believing in a promise that Your Word never returns void, that as we say at this place, that when Your Word is opened, Your mouth is open. So God, may our lives listen to what Your Word, what Your voice will say to us. And as we begin this series today, Lord, may we see that word Savior in a new way or in a fresh way. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Here's the idea that I want you to get get from today, and we see it in verse 28 and 29, what we just read. It's this, that you, that I, have a king who chose to travel the road that would provide your salvation and mine. And what we need to understand is that when we look at this story, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the Savior, Jesus, who desires to be your Savior, not just my Savior, if you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ as that, that He chose to walk this road for you to provide you salvation. He wasn't tricked. He wasn't entrapped. He wasn't caught off guard. No, no, no. He chose it. And Luke 9, 51 that I made mention of says this literally, this verse, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, speaking of Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. That Jesus didn't shy away from this purpose that God had given him before the beginning of time. He didn't shy away from it. He wasn't scared of it. But he said, this is what I came to do, and I know it's time, and I'm setting my face. I'm choosing to go down the road that would provide salvation for you and for me and for all of mankind who places their faith and trust in it. He chose this road. It's so important to understand. And here's another thing we need to understand. His disciples shouldn't have been caught off guard by what's about to happen in this week. I say that because Luke 18, verses 31 through 34 says this. It says, and then taking the 12, he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Like Jesus doesn't try to hide it. Like his disciples aren't like, man, Jesus, where's Jesus taking us? Not sure where we're going. No, 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 it says, we are going to Jerusalem. Why? And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So he's going to spell out exactly what he came here to do to them. He says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. I mean, Jesus doesn't hide anything to his disciples. This is, guys, this is why I came. This is what's about to happen. The journey that we're on to Jerusalem, it's for this. Look at what it says in verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And lest we be too judgmental to the disciples, how many times do you read this book and you read the things 
and you look back to when you're reading them, you're like, man, I didn't even understand really what it really said. I had no idea what God was doing when He said that to me through the verses that I just read in my quiet time or when I was in life group or when I was sitting in a seat in a Sunday service. So let's not be too critical of the disciples because we've all been there. But what we need to understand also about this passage of Scripture before we jump into it is what was going on during this time. See, what we need to understand is this was, this was Passover week, and so what you need to understand is that Jerusalem would have been teeming with people. Like, there would have been people everywhere. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe you're at a theme park, and, you're, and you get there, and you thought that there weren't going to be a lot of crowds, and all of a sudden you realize, man, what have we done? And you're like walking in a crowd. I've been in this before. I mean, I grew up in Orlando. I remember going to Disney World before right around July, which is not the time to go if you're making plans. And I remember literally walking and rubbing shoulders with hot, sweaty people the whole time thinking we actually paid money for this. That would have been Jerusalem. Here's why I say that, because Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, says this about this time of Passover. He said, the number of sacrificial lambs slaughtered at the Passover was determined to be somewhere around 260,000. And because one lamb was allowed to be offered for up to 10 people, because as we know, not everyone had the resources to buy a lamb, some would have to buy a turtle dove, some would have to buy other types of things. But if you were buying a lamb, you literally could go in with 10 other people and purchase that lamb, and that lamb could be sacrificed at the time to cover your sins that you committed in this last year. Remember, we're in the sacrificial system yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And so if we do the math that literally you could have one lamb for every 10 people, you don't have to be a math wizard to realize that you could possibly have in Jerusalem during this time of Passover week over 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem. It's a packed house. And so I think that sheds light on what we're going to read here, but when we look at this story, I mentioned it already, that really this triumphal entry as often as it's termed is Jesus' coronation. But as we're going to see as we walk through this passage of Scripture, it is so different than what we may know of or what we've learned about in history about a typical king or queen's coronation. I was kind of interested, and I love history, and I was reading through some different coronations, and I came across this one that I thought was interesting that will show us how different it was to what Jesus experienced. Queen Victoria of England, was coronated in 1838. Very attractive woman, as you can see, right? You guys didn't laugh at that, so I may have offended you. Um, <laughs> Father, forgive me of my sin. Queen Victoria, coronation in 1830. A very beautiful woman. Wore a crown. Listen to this crown. It was decorated with 1,363 brilliant cut diamonds. 1,273 were a rose cut and 147 were a table cut diamond. It's crazy, right? 277 pearls were in this crown. 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 4 rubies. One of those rubies being called this, the black prince's ruby, which was 170 carats. Then you also had sapphires as if you didn't have enough in your crown. 
sapphires. And the largest sapphire was this Stuart sapphire that was inset right above, right around the base of this crown. That was 104 carats. Queen Victoria was not a very tall in stature woman. Can you imagine the weight of this crown? But here's what blew me away. As if this crown didn't have enough like bling in it, in 1905, they decided that this imperial state crown, which does exist today, part of the crown jewels, would have this Cullinan diamond in it that was found in Africa in 1905. Now, get this is how big this diamond was, and I think we have a picture of it in the crown. It weighs 3,601 carats. Ladies, I don't think you can wear that on your hand. Can you imagine? Like, let, let me show you what my fiance got me. Like, it's like this big around. Now, if you're like me, you know what my first thought goes to? How much does this thing cost? Well, if you're thinking like me, then I'm gonna answer that question. Here's just the diamond, not the crown, not with all the other bling in it, just the diamond, is valued at somewhere around $529 million. Yeah. I don't know what the crown, that basically I was like, well, what's the whole crown cost? And they're basically like priceless. And I just share that to show you the nature of how a normal king or queen would, ha, would be seen in their coronation. It would be lavish, it would be eccentric, it would be over the top. Why? Because at the end of the day, the coronation of a king or queen, it's really about one person, them. But what we're going to see in this story is with Jesus' coronation, it's not so much only about him as much as it's about you and me. That's why I say that we look at this story and we're reminded that we have a king who chose to travel the road that would provide for your salvation and mine. And so what I want to do as we unpack this text is I want to give you three things that this road reveals about our Savior King Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 30. He says to these two disciples, go into the village in front of you and when on entering, you will find a colt. And what we need to understand is that word colt actually means a young donkey that's never been ridden. Which it says right there, on which no one has ever sat and untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, let me explain what's not going on here. And you may think that, oh, obviously I knew that, but I just want to be clear about something. Jesus is not sending his two disciples on a covert mission. They're not like, here's the deal, guys. We need a donkey. And so I want you disciples to sneak into this person's house and to untie it and hopefully you don't get caught. But in the case that you do, just tell them that I need it. That's not what's going on here. There's no covert mission. There's no mission impossible. If you choose to not do this mission, it will self, there's none of that going on. Jesus is just telling them, I want you to go. Here's the instructions that you need. Do exactly what I say. Now look at verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he, Jesus, had told them. Imagine that. 
Verse 33, and they were untying the colt, and its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? So what it, okay, this is a scenario Jesus just told us of, so here's what we're going to say. Verse 34, and they said, the Lord has need of it. No questions asked. Done. Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Here's the first thing that I believe this road that our king took reveals about our Jesus. Number one, the humility of this king. His humility. What did I say? Well, we're going to see in this story his coronation, his recognition as Messiah, as king, is so vastly different than anything else that we see in history of a king or a queen. And I think that's seen by this young donkey that Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem, into the place that he knows he will not exit before he has to die on the cross for your sins and mine. See, I think that Jesus providentially rode on this young donkey to portray two things that we will see from Scripture. Here's the first one, his position as Messiah, as King. Jesus wasn't like, hey, we can't find a nice horse, we can't find a chariot, so let's just make do with what we got. I, I met this person a couple weeks ago, they got some donkeys, so let's just ride one of those. No, 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 no. This was ordained by God for a specific reason, to portray some things. And the first one was that this person who was riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey that's never been ridden is Israel's Messiah, is your king today. Here's why I say that, because this was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. So if you've got a pen this morning, and I hope you bring a pen to church, Right next to the margin there of verse 30, Zechariah 9.9. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And he's righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a... Re Say that with me. Donkey. On a colt. A foal. A young, never ridden Donkey. If we never knew this story before and we all gathered together and we had like just this brainstorming session and we were like, man, what, what should a king ride on to basically tell everybody he's king? I would venture to guess that no one in this room, if we didn't know this story, would say, man, I got this amazing idea. I've been holding it in. I've been waiting for everyone else to share their ideas and I've been holding it in because I didn't want to be rude, but now let me let you have it. I have the perfect idea. This king ought to ride on a donkey. Nobody would say that. You'd have people saying, man, he needs to ride on this stallion into the town and ride high on it. It needs to be tall. It needs to be strong. It needs to be muscular. It needs to be without blemish. Like he needs to ride on that because after all, he's announcing that he's king. And all of us would say, great idea. You might even have say, say, yeah, that's a good idea, but I got a better idea. This amazing masculine stallion that, that he would ride on, better than him riding on it, let's have it pulling an amazing gold embellished 
chariot with diamonds and rubies, maybe even some, maybe you could borrow some from Queen Victoria, like whatever, like, like that's the way that he needs to ride in and announce that he is king. Not a donkey. But here's what we need to understand. The reason why Jesus chose this is because that's what God ordained from the beginning of time. And if he didn't choose this, then he wouldn't be showing Israel that your Messiah has come. That's why he chose it. But what's interesting is when we understand this timing of when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it's not just the donkey that illustrates that he's king, it's the timing of when he does it. Because there's also another prophecy at play that's maybe not as clear. And in Daniel, the book of Daniel, the Lord predicted that the time from Artaxerxes' decree ordering the rebuilding of the temple, remember in Nehemiah, until the coming of the Messiah would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let me just tell you, Daniel's not the book that you're probably going to jump to first off and say, I'm going to have my devos in Daniel. But in Daniel 9.25, it says there's going to be 69 weeks from the time that Artaxerxes declares to rebuild the temple to when the Messiah comes. And one of the things that you need to understand about 69 weeks is a week equaled seven years. And so when you do the math, it was 483 years from the time that this decree was made to what? Literally to the time when Jesus gets on this donkey and enters into Jerusalem, 483 years. That's why I say this morning that our king did not get duped, did not get tricked, did not get finagled, did not get convinced that he's supposed to do this. No, 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 no. Our king knew exactly what he was doing and he chose the road and he chose it the way that God had ordained from the beginning of time. I'm to ride on in a donkey and I'm not to ride in a day early or a day late. I know the prophecy. I know what it says. After all, I am the word. I know what I'm doing. And that's so important when we look at this week and we walk through this series over the next six weeks that our Savior knew exactly what he was doing. There was careful premeditation. There was careful, carefully choosing. And never before in Jesus' ministry was there this public declaration of who he was until now. See, this riding on a donkey in the time that it was done portrays Jesus as Messiah. It was important that Jesus did it the way that it was described. But here's what I also see. Not only does this riding on the donkey in such a humble way portray Jesus as Messiah and as King, and we can look at it today and say, yes, this is one of the reasons why we know Jesus is who he says he is, but it also portrays his character as a servant. Because kings don't ride into places to declare who they are on donkeys. And so it displays his character as servant. What does it say in Zechariah 9.9 again? It says he was humble. And part of that humility was displayed on what he sat on when he ride in, into the city of Jerusalem. He didn't come in as a mighty warrior. He came in as a humble servant. More specifically, he came in as a humble servant for you and me. 
He didn't come in as a mighty warrior. He didn't ride in like we would think he should ride in. No, no, no. At this time, in this place, ordained by God Almighty for your sins and mine, he came in as a humble servant. Now let me also say, there's coming a day where Jesus is coming back one day to right all wrongs. And he's not riding in on a donkey. He's riding in on a white horse. And he will ride in as a mighty warrior. As Revelation 19 says, and he will make right all wrongs, but not here. Not at this time. Not at this place. Because Jesus had a mission. And he chose it. For you and for me. Matthew 20, 28 says this, The Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The way that Jesus rides in portrays himself as a servant. And you may not have caught this point, but I want to point it out. Is that Jesus tells his disciples, let's go back to what he told them in this passage of verses 30 through 35. He says that if the owners come to you and ask what you're doing, that you tell them the Lord needs it. Jesus didn't give the disciples money to buy that donkey. Just think about that. That the creator of the universe, the one that created these animals, the one that spoke this world into existence, the one that humbled himself and put on human flesh and lived as a baby and knew what it was like to experience pain, knew what it was like to be nursed, knew what it was like to cry, knew what it was like to be betrayed, and all of those different things that this king of the universe who had everything at his disposal and could literally call out in a moment and his angels come and destroy anyone that was against him, that this humble servant, this humble savior king did not have enough money to rub together to buy the donkey that would lead him to the cross for you and for me. That's how much he humbled himself. So much so that he had to say, he didn't say the Lord's gonna buy it. He didn't say that the Lord deserves it. He says, you need to tell to the owners, the Lord needs it. Even in acquiring the donkey, we see the humility of this king. And so when I read verses 35 and 34, here's what it causes me to ask myself. And here's what it ought to cause you to ask yourself. How is my life positioned this morning as I look at this road that my king chose to travel for me? Is my heart positioned in a prideful way? Have I come into this room believing I deserve this? I want this. Why don't I have this? Because pride is literally this. Pride is a sinful, self-sufficient mindset that motivates sinful, selfish desires. And when I'm filled with pride, here's what really my life is about. Simply this. It's all about me. It's all about me. Any decisions that I make can always be traced on how does this benefit me? How does this push my agenda? How does this serve me? How does this benefit me? How does this come across 
according to me. And therefore, not only my decisions are driven about me, but my outcomes on whether they're successful or not are driven about me. Did this serve me? Did this accomplish my desires? Did this fulfill my agenda? And some of us are so ridden with pride today And what the Lord wants you to do is to look at this story once again. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what he wants you to do is bring yourself back to the place of stop thinking that it's about you and look at what your humble Savior, King, accomplished for you. Look at his example. Philippians 2, 5-7 says this, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. That though he, speaking of Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is is Jesus wasn't going around and saying, hey, hey, I don't want you to forget I'm God. Don't forget that. In other words, Jesus wasn't about, let me do what I want to do. Let me say what I want to say. Let me determine what I think is successful. No, 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 no. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He was submissive to the Father. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus full knew who he was. He didn't have to prove anything. And it says there, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. See, here's what humility is. Humility is a submissive mindset that motivates selfless action. See, it says, have this mind in you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if I place my faith and trust in Christ, he's given me the Holy Spirit so that I can be filled with the Spirit so I can think with a mindset of humility. See, humility is a selfless mindset. It starts with how we think about ourselves, but it doesn't stop there. Then it motivates itself into selfless action. And don't you see Jesus' selflessness in these verses? See, some of us need to bring ourselves back to the reality it's not about me, it's about Him. It's about Jesus. And my decisions need to be directed in that way. Lord, that what I want to do with my life, how I want to say this, how I want to do this, how I want to accomplish this, it's not for me, Lord, it's about you. And how I determine whether an outcome is successful or not is not about how it promotes me, but how it promotes Jesus. See, Jesus was focused on one thing. I am focused on this mission given to me by the Father because it is about His glory and mankind's salvation. Here's a second thing that this road reveals about our king and it's found in verses 36 through 38 here's the second thing the promised victory of this king look at what it says in verse 36 and it says and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road and he was drawing near and already on the way down the mount of olives a whole multitude of his disciples so not just the 12 but literally everyone that's following him We don't know the number, but it was at least in the thousands in the very conservative range. And more than that, because this place was, as I said, teeming with people. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And here's what they were saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. 
Here's what you need to understand that you may not realize, some of you may do, that it was an ancient custom. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 9, that people would lay down their garments in front of the procession of the king because it was symbolic that they were submitting to him. That we are laying ourselves at your feet. In the account of John 12, it mentions that they were laying palm fronds down in front of this young colt that had never been ridden that Jesus is riding on. And one of the things that that symbolized was victory and joy. They were praising Jesus for who he knew he was. That he was their Messiah King, promised 483 years ago by Daniel. That he was the one whom God had always promised all the way back to Genesis chapter number 3. Matthew 21 is another account of this story, and it's interesting when you put all these accounts together, you get a fuller picture. And in Matthew 21, 9, it says that they were literally shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Son of David, a term that once again refers to Jesus' messianic line. He was king. He was the promised king. He was the promised Messiah. But then we have this word, Hosanna. Which literally means this, save now. Not save later, literally means save now. But here's what's interesting, and we know this if we've heard this story before. See, the crowd that was yelling all of these things was not interested in Jesus saving their souls at this time, but they were really only interested in Jesus saving their nation. Remember, this is Passover time. What did Passover symbolize? Passover was a symbolic celebration reminding themselves of God rescuing them from Egyptian captivity. What type of captivity were they were in this moment? They were under Roman captivity, Roman rule, under the tyranny of Rome. And so these crowds are thinking to themselves, what a better time for this king to overthrow the tyranny of Rome and to set up his kingdom and to wipe Rome out than on Passover week. Like Jesus, we're so excited that this is what you are going to do. But we know, right, that's not what happened. Jesus didn't come to wage war and conquer Rome. Why did Jesus come? He came to wage war for your soul. He came to wage war over your sin that separates you from a holy God. It causes the reality for you that there's nothing good that you can ever do to warrant favor in a relationship with a holy God because you're sinful and he's not. He came to wage that war. And he he came just not to wage it, but to win it. He came to provide peace with God and man. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, on the other side of the cross, Paul says this, the sting of death is sin. Like, that's what my sin deserves. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Because here's what I know is often true of myself, and I put myself in this boat. I don't just put you in there and then just kind of push you out to sea and say, well, this is true of you. No, 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 I'm in this boat with you. 
that so often in my life, I'm shouting Hosanna. I'm saying to the Lord, Lord, I need you to save me now. Like yesterday would have been even better. But I need you to save me now. With whatever circumstance it may be, and I'm speaking of followers of Jesus Christ, if you're here today and that's you, and we, are, we may be calling out to God right now this week, yesterday, we know we're going to do it tomorrow, and we're saying, Lord, I need you to save me in this, this relational issue, this financial issue, this occupational issue, whatever it is, Lord, I need your salvation now. Hosanna is what we are saying, figuratively, if we're not saying it literally. But the reason why this road that we find ourselves, Jesus, choosing in this story reveals to us about our king, the promised victory, is because in order for us to have the faith and the trust and the hope that we are going to see deliverance and whatever the things are that we are crying Hosanna to, the reason why I can have faith, the reason why I can have strength to believe in the salvation that my king will provide for me circumstantially is because of the salvation that he provided for me. In my relationship with God, that's why I have the faith. That's why I have the belief is because of the victory that was provided for me through my Savior, King Jesus, that Jesus Christ is not just concerned with my circumstances. No, he has a greater concern. He's concerned with my salvation. That's why Paul says, look at it. This is what then shall we say to these things? In context, he's speaking to everything else that he wrote in Romans 8. When I read this verse, I think about even this story that we've been walking through. It shows the humility of our king. The victory of our king. The sovereignty of our king. What shall we say to these things? What does Paul say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not also give him, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against you in saying that you don't deserve Christ's salvation for you? It is God who justifies. You didn't justify yourself. You didn't declare yourself righteous. No, no, no. That's what the victory of our king did. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I get it. You're shouting, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. But listen to me, Paul's saying, remind yourself that your victory over sin and death because of Jesus Christ is what gives you hope in the things that you are crying for salvation circumstantially. And then he says, are those things going to overtake us? And all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to me. What this road shows us is the humility of our king. It shows us the promised victory of our king. And here's the last thing. And it's found at the end of these verses in verse 38 and 40. It shows us the praise that is worthy of our king listen to me this morning our king is worthy of your praise 
He's worthy of it. He deserves it. Notice it says that they just don't say here in this passage of Scripture, peace in heaven, but it says, and glory in the highest. If you're sharp this morning, you're like, I've heard that before. Yeah, you have. You found it in Luke chapter 2 when the angels come down and they announce to the shepherds that the Savior has come. And they say, glory in the highest. Which makes me say, what am I giving glory to that's higher than the one who is most deserving of it? Who's getting the majority of my praise today? Because there's one that's worthy of it. See, I think there's two things that I see in these verses as we close. What can rob us of the praise to the only king who is worthy of it? Here's the first thing. Unfulfilled expectations. You ever have those of the Lord? Everyone should be doing this. See, what caused these crowds to stop yelling Hosanna and a few days later in turn yelling crucify him is unfulfilled expectations. They had an agenda. And because it was a different agenda than their Savior had, they turned away from them and said, he's not who he says he is. See, I wonder how many of us are in this room and maybe you've come to Jesus and you're like, I want to come to Jesus because I've gotten caught up in thinking I'll be wealthier, I'll be healthier, I'll be wiser, I'll be happier, all of these different types of things. And what you're finding out in your relationship with the Lord is, you know what? Being a follower of Jesus Christ, though yes, there's tremendous highs, it means there's going to be times of suffering because in suffering is when we grow in our Christian walk and you're finding yourself, you came to Jesus with your own agenda and you're like, man, I don't want this anymore. Why? Because you didn't come to Jesus understanding that it's not about your agenda. It's you placing your trust in Jesus as Savior, not you. He's king, not you. And so often we need to check our expectations at the door and say, Lord, I am here for you. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my needs. It's not about my wants. It's about you. Unfulfilled expectations is what robbed many of these people from the praise that they were giving in the moment that was worthy of their king. But here's the second thing, self-sufficiency. Because do you see the Pharisees' response here? They literally say in the craziness of this crowd and they're shouting, hey, teacher, rebuke these people. Why? Because the Pharisees were so concerned about them being looked at as the end game. No, no, no. You're, Jesus, you're, you're taking the spotlight off of us and you're putting it on the one who's really deserving of it and, and their self-sufficiency and, and, and that we're our own hero was being challenged and it robbed them of the praise that was indeed worthy of their king. Listen to me. You need to understand this. My praise does not change who God is. And my lack of praise does not change who God and who Jesus is. I can praise him with my hands lifted high, and he's still the amazing, sovereign, righteous, victorious king. Praise God for that. 
and I can sit in this place with my arms folded and not give a rip about who Jesus is, but listen to me, he doesn't change based on what you think either. But here's what happens, is when I do not give him the praise that he is worthy of, it robs me of something that brings joy, that brings perspective. I'm the one that loses. But I don't give him the praise that my king is worthy of. I